Thank you for listening to Voices of UMass Med, a podcast produced by the University of Massachusetts Medical School's Office of Communications. Welcome to the Voices of UMass Med. There has been an alarming rise in depression in the world. It's a tenacious illness. It can happen to anyone at any age. According to the CDC, about one out of every six adults will have depression and experience that at some point in their life. Women are more likely than men to experience symptoms. Here to talk with us about depression and the research that is giving hope in the form of new treatments that might be on the horizon is Dr. Anthony Rothschild. He's the Irving S. and Betty Brudnick Chair in Psychiatry here at UMass Medical School, a professor of psychiatry and director of the Center for Psychopharmacologic Research and Treatment. Dr. Rothschild, thank you so much for making time to talk with us. My pleasure. This is really uh, important, of course. So first, let's start with what does it mean uh, when somebody is diagnosed with clinical depression? Well, clinical depression, or what we refer to in, in psychiatry as major depressive disorder, are people who suffer from uh, either sad mood or loss of interest in, and pleasure in their usual activities. In it, but in addition to that, have also had problems with sleeping, trouble falling asleep or staying asleep, trouble concentrating, having no energy, um, having a decrease in appetite, food not tasting as, as good as it usually does, pessimistic thoughts, or feelings that life is not worth living, and even in some more severe cases, thinking of, um, of, of suicide. So when, so um, the, the diagnosis often comes when it's really interfering with somebody's day-to-day -day life. Well, yes, and that's actually a good question. Um, it's not just a day here or a day there having these symptoms. Um, actually, we would define clinical depression as having those symptoms I described for a minimum period of two weeks and every day for those, uh, for those two weeks. Having a bad day uh, or having a bad couple of days would not make the criteria for clinical depression. But if it goes on for two weeks or more, then yes. I feel like this is so widespread in our society. So many people have these um, experience depression. Yes. Is there still a stigma? I mean, do you still find that people are reluctant to pick up that phone or make an appointment? Uh, unfortunately, yes, although it has gotten significantly better over the last uh, decade or two. Um, there's a greater awareness um, in the public that this is um, not uh, an, that this is an illness, that this is not uh, that somebody, you know, there's something bad about their character or something like that. It's an illness that affects a lot of uh, different people and, and um, actually not, not only does it affect all age groups, but it affects all socioeconomic groups. It affects all religions, all races equally. So let's talk about some of the risk factors sure. that are known. Sure. Um, well, uh, one is genes. Um, there is a genetic predisposition, family history of depression. If somebody has a a lot of uh, people in the family have suffered from depression. That person is at risk for depression. Stress uh, is a big risk factor. Loss, um, uh, for example, loss of a relationship, loss of a job. These, those particular kinds of stresses um, play a big role in depression. Early life trauma, uh, chronic physical illness. These are all, all uh, risk factors, and there are others, but those are some of the main ones. And so um, there's data that came out um, according to, it's like health insurance data from last year, showing that the rates of depression are rising quickly. Uh, 
you would never want them to be rising at all, but they're rising kind of alarmingly fast among teenagers and young adults. Is there any indication as to what might be fueling that? Well, it's a very interesting question, and it's not entirely clear why that is, but there are some uh, hypotheses about this. So first of all, in the, in the um, teens and young adults, you have the same risk factors we talked about with adults. You know, family history, loss, um, uh, trauma, um, things like that. But in addition, there may be, um, there are things about being a teen or a young adult that, uh, that, are, that are different. So one um, uh, hypothesis is that um, uh, the phenomenon of helicopter parents. Um, so that, um, and this is uh, probably uh, a phenomenon of the baby boom generation parents. Um, who are more involved in their kids' lives, and people have written about this in some ways in, in, extremely involved. Mm -hmm. And the hypothesis there is, is that because the parents are so overprotective, the young, teenagers and young adults don't develop their own resilience to deal with stress and things like that. So that's one hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Another hypothesis is that um, the teens and young adults are more comfortable nowadays in sharing their thoughts and feelings than the, uh, the previous generation. And that's in some ways a good thing, um, uh, and that would lead to greater recognition. And another hypothesis, which is a hypothesis I myself um, think um, needs a, a lot of uh, research on, is social media. Mm. Um, so I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to ask. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's you know it's hard enough growing up and being a teenager, and you have all the you know all the stresses of that and the hormone changes and and and, and so forth. Um, but nowadays, uh, teens and young adults go on social media and compare themselves to, um, to other um, teens and young adults. And there's this phenomenon, I've heard patients tell me there's something called Facebook depression, mm -hmm. where you go on Facebook. In fact, people have studied this. The more time you spend on social media, the greater the risk of depression. Now, why is that? I mean, one hypothesis is it has to do with comparing yourself to other people's you know, lives and then all these great things happening in other people's lives and not in your life, and that's another stress. And then one other thing related to social media, cyberbullying. Yeah. So that's a phenomenon we didn't have, I didn't have when I was growing up. We had bullying, right. but we didn't have this additional phenomenon. It seems easier for people to be bullied online. So those are some yeah. of the hypotheses that um, may explain why we're seeing these rising rates. Yeah, it's really fascinating. It feels like... Um you know, social media probably isn't going anywhere. So I, I'm with you. I think that research into what we can do about that is really fascinating. So um, once people are diagnosed with depression, what are the most common treatments um, that people could expect? So um, there are two important modalities to treat depression that we use today. Um, one is um, uh, medication, antidepressant medication. And the other modality is um, therapy, talking therapy. Um, there's a particular form of therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, which has been shown to be particularly useful for treating uh, depression. And in, in people who have more severe um, cases of depression, you would, you would likely want to use both modalities at the same time, both medications, antidepressants, um, and uh, therapy. You're listening to Voices of UMass Med, featuring the people, ideas, and advances of the University of Massachusetts Medical School. So antidepressants have been available for a long time, and my understanding is there can be some trial and error with that uh, to get just the right 
medicine and the right fit for each individual. Are there, um, are there new treatments or new approaches on the horizon? So, so yes, uh, in, to, in, in to all your questions, um, and, and let's start with um, the selection of an antidepressant. Yeah. Um, because you're correct, um, nowadays uh, uh, we still, it's, tri it's trial and error for any one particular antidepressant. And that's tough when you're in a vulnerable position, you're correct. not feeling well. Correct, correct. And, 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 and a trial of an antidepressant can take six to eight weeks, so you don't have an answer really for six to eight weeks whether medication number one or is going to be effective or not. So the, the, uh, there's been a lot of research, particularly in the last decade, to try and help um, uh, patients and doctors and nurse practitioners to guide them in the selection of an antidepressant. For example, there was a study in the Journal of Psychiatric Research on using a, um, a genetic test to help guide um, clinicians as to which antidepressant to prescribe. I was the, an author on that publication. UMass Medical School was a site uh, for this um, study. So things like that. I mean, we're still at the very infancy of that to try and help, uh, uh, help predict. There's a lot of research using imaging to try and predict, although that's a little less practical for a patient to have a brain scan before they get an antidepressant as opposed to uh, this gene test which is just taking some saliva and sending it off to the, to the lab. And to answer then the second part of your question is we, we should talk about the new treatments that are yes. on the horizon. Yeah, I really want to dig into this. So what are some of the things that are promising, that are being explored and that are showing promise for patients? So we are on the cusp right now of a revolution in the treatment of depression. Um, uh, so for um, all the antidepressants that are currently used to treat depression in the United States and around the world, um, all work based on what's called the monoamine theory of depression. They work either on serotonin or norepinephrine or dopamine. These are all monoamines. And they're, they all are a variation on that theme. They're not all the same. Some work more on serotonin, some work more on norepinephrine, but they all work in that regard, okay? Um, we are on the cusp of new treatments that don't work on the monoamines. They work on a different neurotransmitter system called the glutamate system. Glutamate. glutamate. And these antidepressants are different in that they work extremely rapidly, within 24 hours for some of them. Mm. Um, and um, uh, they also, appear to work in people who have received no benefit from the antidepressants we have on the market today, these antidepressants based on the monoamine theory. And so that provides a lot of hope for people with what we call treatment-resistant depression, basically not responding to medications that we have available today. So it's a completely different approach. You're targeting a, a different... A different neurotransmitter system in, in the brain. There, there is also... Um, the glutamate system is related to another neurotransmitter system based on, on GABA. Um, and, and, but I guess the, the point is, is that these are different neurotransmitter systems from, um, um, uh, from, from the, the medications we currently have that we currently use. And so how are you targeting the glutamate system? So there are medications in development. Um, one of them is called ketamine. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, ketamine, people may be familiar with because there's been a little bit of discussion about it in the lay press. 
Ketamine is, a, um, is an intravenously, is an anesthetic, and it's been on the market as an anesthetic and still used by anesthesiologists uh, today. Um, but it was uh, discovered that um, at dosages below the dose for anesthesia, that it seemed to have antidepressant effects. And this has now been well studied, um, mostly at the National Institute of Mental Health, but in a few other places as well. Um, to show that intravenous administration of um, ketamine can provide a rapid antidepressant effect within t 24 hours. That's, star that's startling. Now, um, Especially for somebody who struggled, as you said, this is for somebody who, who did not respond well to other more common treatments. Correct. And um, um, a pharmaceutical company called Janssen has developed a nasal spray version of this called S-ketamine. Um, which we studied here at, uh, at UMass. Um, and that is uh, under review now at the Food and Drug Administration and could very likely be approved in 2019. How about that? And how would that be, would it be administered on a daily basis or what can patients um, expect in terms of using that therapy? So the way, um, the way uh, we administered it here at UMass, and I presume this will be the way it would be if it is approved by the, by the FDA, you start off um, t uh, twice a week. The person has to come in. It has lots of side effects. Um, the person comes in and they, you know, they, they administer the nasal spray um, in each nostril. They have to be observed for an hour and a half or so after the administration. They unfortunately, because it has anesthetic-like properties, can't dry for 24 hours. Oh. So it's you know not there's a simple the, solution. it's not simple, but for the people, uh, I just came this morning from administering it to a patient who's in in the study. The patients in our study are allowed to keep um, taking it um, until the medication becomes available by by the FDA. But to finish the administration, it's twice a week for a month. And then after that, it, uh, it goes to once a week. Mm -hmm. And then after that, it, depending on how the person doing it, could be as frequently as once a week or as little as once a month. How about that? And, and how, how um, long term have you been studying this? Do we know, will it be an effective treatment for years? Well, we don't know years yet. I mean, the people in the studies have been on it for a year and a half or so. I mean, one of the um, reasons to study it is whether there are any uh, deleterious effects from continual administration. So far, there don't seem to be any, but that's, that's why we've been having these long-term studies. What are some of those side effects that you mentioned that are common with ketamine? People can have hallucinations. Um, we have one patient who goes uh, to a rock and roll concert every time uh, she gets the medication. Um, hallucinations, uh, visual and auditory. Um, some people get very, very sleepy. Um, uh, uh, burning sensation, this is from the nasal spray, sometimes in the throat, numbness and tingling in various parts of the body. Those are the more, more common ones. But the good news is, you know, after about uh, 90 minutes, it's all gone. And that's why we have to observe people for, for 90 minutes. Uh, just to make another point about this, if this gets approved by the FDA, this will be a procedure that will need to be done probably in a hospital-type setting. Mm -hmm. This will not be something done in an outpatient office. There will probably be, you know, tertiary... Um, there will be tertiary centers that will be like UMass that will be administering the medication. So ketamine is certainly promising for a subset of people with persistent depressive 
um, symptoms. Yes. What else is out there for folks? So there's another medication in development called rapastinol, um, which we are also studying here at uh, UMass, which also works on the glutamate system like uh, esketamine, but at a different part of the receptor so you do not get these hallucinogenic uh, experience or really any of the kind of side effects you see with esketamine. That's administered intravenously. It's, uh, it's only th three uh, milliliters. It goes in a little butterfly, takes um, uh, a minute to inject it. Um, and to show you the difference in those patients, I haven't seen anybody have any side effects yet. Um, we observe them for 15 minutes and then they go to work or they drive home or, or, or and, and that one is being studied in um, basically people who are on an antidepressant, a traditional antidepressant, who haven't received a response, they could then be um, candidates to get this intravenous rapastinol treatment. So that's, you know, that's, that's a little ways away, probably not in 2019, maybe 2020. And then there's actually even uh, another medication in development, which is a pill. Mm -hmm. So the rapastinol, uh, the intravenous, works like the esketamine, like within 24 hours. But there's a, a, a company here in Massachusetts in Cambridge who is developing a pill form of a, a, rapidly, anti, a rapidly acting antidepressant um, that works not in 24 hours, but in 15 days, at least in the preliminary uh, studies. As opposed to six to eight weeks. Correct. Yes. And, um, uh, and it's a pill. Mm -hmm. So uh, that would be a little uh, more practical. Um, that's very early in development. Um, actually, there's a manuscript under review right now, of which I'm a co-author, um, to report the preliminary data on about 80 patients. Um, but they're, they're going into the phase three trial. So again, that's a couple of years away if it, if it turns out to, uh, to work. But th this is what I mean when I say we're on the cusp of a revolution. In a sense, we have antidepressants that work completely differently, that work very rapidly. Um, the other potential um, application of this is um, in the emergency room. So esketamine, there's a study, the nasals, back to the nasal spray, that's being studied uh, in, in, in the emergency rooms where people come in suicidal. And the idea would be um, if you can um, uh, have a rapidly acting antidepressant that helps their suicidal thinking, they may not need to come into the hospital. That's what's being, being studied now. So again, you can see where um, um, there, there are major changes in the way we're going to be treating depression in the, coming, in the coming years. If folks out there who are listening to this want to learn more either about depression or some of these new um, treatments that are being developed, where should they go to learn more? Well, there are a lot of places um, I could recommend, but I think one of, the, uh, one of the good ones is the National Network for Depression Center's website, www.nndc.org. Uh, the, the National Network is a group of um, uh, academic um, medical centers with experts in their centers in depression. UMass is a member of, of that uh, organization, and they have a lot of information about depression, about studies, and um, I think it's quite helpful. Fabulous. That's a great resource. I'll just repeat that, nndc.org for yes. more on that national network. Dr. Anthony Rothschild, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Dr. Anthony Rothschild is the Irving S. and Betty Brudnick Chair in Psychiatry. He's also a professor of psychiatry and director of the Center for Psychopharmacologic Research and Treatment 
here at UMass Medical School. Thank you for listening to, I'm Jennifer Berryman, Vice Chancellor for Communications at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Thank you for listening to Voices of UMass Med, a podcast produced by the Office of Communications at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Visit our website at umassmed.edu news where you can find all of our podcasts. And follow us on Facebook at UMass Med, on LinkedIn at University of Massachusetts Medical School, and on Twitter at UMass Medical. Mm-hmm.